If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. We're two political reporters in D.C. who are going to do something radically different on our podcast. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping the pulse on the voters who will decide this fall's midterm elections, as well as the presidential contest in two years. Today, we're going to take you into the newsroom of the Charlotte Observer, where our colleagues have been covering the fast-approaching 2018 election in the middle of a hurricane. Jim Morrow is a longtime reporter for the Charlotte Observer. He'll join the show from that area of North Carolina to give us an update on Hurricane Florence and what politicians are doing or not doing in the wake of the destruction. Then we've got former Democratic Pennsylvania Congressman Jason Altmeyer joining the show to talk about what makes a moderate a moderate and why the party is shifting left. Finally, Adam Woolner will join the show too to talk about updates from our nationwide influencer series. If you remember, McClatchy is asking several of our communities what's important to them in this tense election cycle. All right, you ready, Andrea? Let's do it. For our first segment, we would like to call on the help of one of our colleagues down in North Carolina to talk about Hurricane Florence. Areas devastated by Hurricane Florence face a major new threat today amid rising water levels. The death toll from this storm is now up to 31 across several states. Floodwaters have cut off the coastal city of Wilmington from the rest of North Carolina. Jim Morrill is a longtime political reporter for the Charlotte Observer. He's going to take us in the newsroom down there. Jim, thanks for coming on the show. Give us an update on on how our colleagues down there are doing covering Hurricane Florence. Uh, Here in Charlotte, it's a pretty sunny day, and there's no sign of that a storm was even through here. But um, a few miles away in some of the suburban counties to Charlotte, there's still flooding. Some roads are still impassable, but most of the damage, as you probably know, has been out east. You know, Wilmington is still landlocked. There's no way in or out by by car, certainly, by road, or even by boat, they say. So Wilmington is one of the largest cities in the state, and it's a virtual island. Jim, is there a sense that this could have been worse for North and and South Carolina? As bad as things are now, we don't want to minimize that in any way. The, The flooding and the storm damage could have even been worse for the Carolinas? Yeah, I think you could always say that. I mean, that's not to minimize what's going on. I mean, there are 32 people dead in both of the Carolinas as a result of the storm. And, you know, the eastern part of the state is is, is really bad, still bad. Uh, I think people worried that it would be affecting more of western North Carolina and, and Charlotte, you know, certainly one of the bigger cities in Durham and Raleigh than it did in Columbia, which hardly got any rain, if any. You know, part of the states dodged a bullet, but part of them were hit pretty hard by that bullet. It's an awkward thing, right, to know after a tragedy uh, like this, after a natural disaster like this, when do you start talking about politics? And now you're getting, in, in some ways, a front row seat of that because there are many, certainly congressional campaigns and state-level campaigns happening in North Carolina. What's been the response of campaigns? Has, has anyone received any criticism for, for continuing to campaign while the hurricane was approaching? Not exactly, but there was a little dust-up in the 9th District. Uh, Democrat Dan McCready announced that he was suspending his campaign for the duration of the storm and pulling his TV ads. His opponent, uh, Republican uh, Mark Harris, you know, he called that a gimmick. The campaign called the McCready uh, announcement a gimmick, and uh, and they said his ads, McCready's ads, were still appearing on TV, even even a couple days 
after he had announced that they were suspended. And McCready people say the reason was that they asked the TV stations and some of the stations in the market had evacuated themselves. And so they weren't in a position to pull the ads, but that became a little dust up. But for the most part, what you see are candidates and even parties uh, running ads that, that are really public service announcements. Uh, and they certainly have candidate logos and candidate voiceovers. But I think everybody feels like it's a safe way to to get their name out there without seeming to take advantage of the storm. We also wanted to ask you about the topic of climate change and covering that uh, in the Carolinas. When, after a storm like this, do you start hearing people talk about that? And, and is it something that is approached differently in a place that experiences storms like this? Oh, I, th- I think people talk about it. You know, there have been some ads on Facebook. I was trying to look for some now about um, from a, a liberal group in North Carolina called Progress NC, and and they've criticized the General Assembly for not using the latest scientific climate studies in some coastal development plans and things like that. The General Assembly is re- controlled by Republicans, and they're, they're not particularly warming up to uh, climate change and and those kind of ideas. And so it's already an issue. And and liberals say that if Republicans had been more open, then they might have done some approach development differently at the coast. Uh, You know, we've seen development go on and homes being built in the last few years down there, despite uh, some of the hurricanes in the past. And we go through this every time there's a hurricane on the coast. You, you can understand if you're an environmentalist, there is uh, something of a tension here because, and I think you do see this in the wake of tragic mass shootings where there is this debate about when is the time to start talking about restricting firearm access versus offering thoughts and prayers. That's a debate I think our listeners are well-versed in. You know, here, if you're an environmentalist, look, you, you don't want to be out there saying, I told you so, obviously, in the, the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster. But this might be simultaneously, it might be an opportunity to try to press to people that these kinds of things will only get worse because of climate change and that people were actually paying attention to this as opposed to the other 98% of the year where, where they're probably relatively indifferent to that message. What have you seen from the environmental community in North Carolina, have they been hesitant to talk about this at all? Or are they willing to to say it just bluntly and explicitly now that this is a consequence of climate change? I think they are. I, I don't think there's any hesitance about it. I don't think they're waiting for anything else. I mean, this is the second big hurricane in a couple of years uh, since Hurricane Matthew hit the same parts of North Carolina a couple of years ago in 2016 and uh, caused tremendous amount of flooding and damage there and to have two consequential hurricanes in a relatively short time. Yeah, people are talking about it. Most of the discussion is still about, you know, helping the victims, you know, securing the roads, uh, doing things like that, recovery efforts. People haven't exactly started second-guessing the governor yet and the administration for their reaction. Uh, They're still in full response mode. And, and, uh, you know, that always comes after after a disaster, after a hurricane, but um, so far we haven't heard any of that. But uh, yeah, I think the the climate change people will be talking about it. I mean, Jim, you know, it's been interesting to me. How much of an issue is climate change in North Carolina politics 
if at all. I, I would just say that you know, watching hundreds of House Democratic primaries, they all they all tend to run together at this point now that we're at the end of the primary process. But I really can't recall seeing a single ad, for example, touting a candidate's a Democratic candidate's position on climate change. So even in among Democratic electorate, where you think this issue would have the most resonance. Even there, it was not something that people were talking about as opposed to something like standing up to Donald Trump or education um, or even health care. How much has it moved the needle in North Carolina? You know, I, don't, I think uh, it doesn't poll very well, and I don't think it's generally at the top list of issues for people, unless there are some situations, isolated or geographically isolated cases of hog lagoons, for example. The floodwaters overflow them, and the water and the waste get out of the lagoons. So that's an issue. And there's also coal ash. You know, we had a coal ash spill a couple years ago that was a big environmental deal here in North Carolina. And it kind of brought to the issue the issue of coal ash ponds across the state. And at least one of those is in eastern North Carolina now in danger of some of the flooded areas. So I think there are more specific cases like that where the environment comes to the forefront. Um, I think if you just talk about climate change in general, it's not a top-of-the-mind issue to a lot of people, even on the uh, Democratic side. Well, Jim, great to hear from you, and thanks so much for updating us on uh, the state of the newsroom. Thank you. So, Andrew, obviously our thoughts and prayers are with the people of North Carolina right now. You know, it's a political show, and I, I think it's a real question about if you're an environmentalist, you know, is this the time to really press upon people that disasters like this are at least exacerbated by something like climate change? It just seems like they have um, an uphill fight, if you will, because as Jim and I mentioned, I mean, it's not like climate change is an issue that you really see a lot of even in Democratic TV ads right now. Right. And all of the challenges that they're facing trying to figure out how to campaign in the middle of the storm. We're 49 days out from an election. You can call a ceasefire, but how long is that going to last when you're uh, just less than two months out? So before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about something pretty cool going on in one of our McClatchy newsrooms. Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. So our next guest is Jason Altmeyer. He's a former three-term congressman from 2007 to 2013 from Western Pennsylvania, uh, who I got to know a little bit covering Pennsylvania politics back in the day. And he's an interesting guy to talk to right now because he is an old school centrist Democrat, if you will. And I thought he would have an interesting perspective on a story I wrote last week about how the centrist Democrats, even the moderate Democrats, seem to be moving left in the Democratic Party right now. And I wanted to talk to him about his own observations of that and then what the political consequences of that are. And look, while we have him on the show, we also want to ask him about the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh that broke this week and the possible political fallout of that. Congressman Altmaier, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to do it. So, you know, I wrote about this in a story last week, and I interviewed you for this story. The, this belief that if you look at the 2018 map now that, that the primary season is over, right, and we've had these hundreds of House primaries and Democratic House primaries, that the party is still nominating, quote-unquote, moderate candidates. 
But the definition of what a moderate candidate has shifted a little bit in the last 10 or 12 years. What do you make of that? What are you seeing when you look at uh, the Democratic Party in 2018? I think you've analyzed it correctly. The definition of a moderate, in my opinion, is somebody who's willing to work with both sides. It's not necessarily issue-based that you have a moderate position on whatever hot-button issue you can think of. It's more a willingness to compromise, a willingness to accommodate other points of view, to listen to others who have different worldviews than you do. And when you're serving in the Congress, it's critical that you be able to negotiate and, and get things done. And that's what's been missing over the past several congressional sessions. I mean, so you're, you're talking about a pretty important shift here that I think is important to explain to the listener. You're talking about, I mean, if, if 10 or 15 years ago, Democratic, quote unquote, moderates would take conservative positions on issues like they would be pro-life or they would be strongly pro, pro-gun or pro-Second Amendment. Uh, they might even support something like a balanced budget amendment. Those kind of Democrats on those issues don't exist. We've talked about on the show before, every single Democratic candidate practically supports abortion rights almost without any restrictions of any kind at this point. And so it's almost like an approach to politics is what defines you as a moderate now that you're willing to work with the other side. I think the way you articulate yourself on those issues is what happens in, in these districts, the, the purple swing districts, or if you're a Democrat running in, in maybe a slightly red district, you're right, you might be personally pro-choice, but you might articulate that in a way that you could appeal to some people who are willing to consider more thoughtfulness on that issue coming from the right. But again, the real issue is going to be when those candidates come to Washington and there's a new wave of support from the left. And I think the biggest issue that will differentiate the class of 2019 from the class of 2007, which I was a member of in the last time there was a blue wave, is that the 2007 class was initiated by independent voters who had voted Republican in previous elections. And I think that's when the truth will be told about whether these candidates who are running now claiming to be moderates and centrists really turn out to be that way. So, Congressman, let's make this personal. Do you think that you could win a Democratic primary this year? I don't know that I that I could. Obviously, it, it's situational, and you have to represent an, an appeal to voters in the district in which you are running. Uh, I don't live in the in the district that I represent anymore, and haven't for several years. So, I don't know the politics as well clearly as I did when I was representing that area. But I do think the shift in the party. Uh, demographically has made a big difference for some of these candidates. The the feeling that what the Tea Party did in 2010, those same type of tactics that you're seeing employed on the left now from the campaign standpoint, uh, I think that it's just a different mentality of candidate and, and a, a voter than you saw back in 2006 and, and even 2008 when that second wave came in. You know, I think, Congressman, the natural question then is if you do see that some differences between from 2006 and 2008, when obviously Democrats did very well, won a lot of House seats in both elections. Do you have concerns that they're not going to have as much success uh, in 2018? And, and, you know, we talk about how moderate candidates are moving left. And that's true. It's also true that what would be considered the, the leftmost 
part of, of the, the Democratic Party is also moving to the left. I mean, we didn't really have serious discussions about something like single-payer health care before this election. And now, you know, there are uh, a lot of Democratic candidates who support that. In fact, the new ad just came out from the Republican Super PAC Congressional Leadership Fund just today on Tuesday attacking a Democrat in, in Omaha uh, running into the Nebraska Congressional District for her support of single-payer health care. Does, does all of that concern you about the maybe the party's not going to win as many seats as it could this year? This is what leads to the polarization that you see in the country is that what you just described is accurate. If you look at the social issues that were important to voters in the country in 2004, when President Bush was running for re-election, recall that Karl Rove was putting gay marriage referendums on the state ballots in key swing states because he felt that that would advantage conservatives because uh, far-right voters would come out in droves to uh, vote against those type of gay rights referendums. Obviously, the, the pendulum has swung completely to the left on that issue. I think if you look at immigration, if you look at abortion, certainly on the health care issue, we can talk more about that. There's been a very well-defined leftward tilt in public opinion on all of those issues. And that's why I think the Democrats hold a huge advantage in a lot of these races. You're describing an important phenomenon. What you're saying is people hear us talking about how the Democratic Party is moving to the left. And naturally, the, the, the consequence of that, you would think, is that they're going to be harmed politically. What you're saying, though, is that even if the Democratic Party is moving left, that the public is also shifting to the left on these these issues. And, and, and consequently, maybe then the party isn't going to be hurt by that. And, and, and I think that's an interesting statement from someone like you, again, Congressman, who was more of a centrist and moderate 10 or 12 years ago. You don't think that the party is going to pay as big a price as you would expect, as many people would expect if they move left. I do think there is a danger for Democrats over the next couple of cycles If you recall back after the 2006 election, there was a second wave when President Obama was elected to office where 22 more Democrats or a margin of plus 22 new Democrats were added to to the Democratic majority. And at that point, what I saw in the Democratic caucus was a shift in the acceptance of moderates and centrists within the caucus. In in that first term after the 06 election, there was an acknowledgement that the Democrats would not be in the majority were it not for the centrists and moderates. Speaker Pelosi would not be speaker were it not for that group of people. After that second wave came in, I think there was a calculation made, either consciously or, or unconsciously, subconsciously, Uh, about the need to push the Democratic agenda to the left, regardless of the political impact it had in individual members' districts. Congressman, do you think that that logic of um, shifting public opinion applies across the Senate map this time? We hear over and over from Republicans on this show even that they think that the Supreme Court nomination hearings happening on Capitol Hill right now are a big win for them in the 10 states that Trump won. I think the Senate is somewhat immune to these types of, of swings as, we, as we're talking about in the House because the, just the dynamic of having two senators from California and two senators from North Dakota and two senators from Texas and two senators from South Dakota. And just the way that adds up is the Republicans are going to have an institutional advantage 
for a long time un- unless the political points of view change in some of those areas, which is which is unlikely, at least in the short term. Do you think that this uh, confirmation hearing right now helps or hurts Senate Democrats? I think some of these swing voters in a conservative district like the one I used to represent might be turned off by the spectacle of an 11th hour accuser coming out with a 38-year-old accusation. But I think most of the country is probably going to take a a different point of view on that. Turned off. What what do you mean by that? We're talking about Democratic voters in conservative areas, but I think they would take a more conservative view of the debate that's about to occur, that is occurring across the country of of the merits of the allegation and, and the process that was used to bring it forth. I'm not personally casting judgment. I'm just giving you a political analysis on this. So I do think... In, in the national political spectacle that you're seeing and people preparing to run for president and even in uh, some Senate races, I think it's going to help the Democrats. And, and I, I hate to put it in those terms because these are very serious accusations and somebody whose life was damaged and turned upside down by, by what she says happened. But if you look at the individual House districts, I think there are districts in the country where this will be helpful politically for conservatives who are trying to win back those conservative Democrats. I think there's areas of the country where this is not going to be politically helpful for the Democrats. That's interesting. I mean, if if you could sum this up for us, because it sounds like you think that in 2018, like you said, you think Democrats are going to take the House, right? I do. I think they're going to take it by a sizable margin, dozen or 15 seats. Is that right? Okay. Your concern, though, is that in the the long run, not even really in the long run, we're talking in the the medium run after the election, that a party that moves to the left and really puts pressure on moderates not to compromise, not to try to, quote unquote, get things done, is going to lead Democrats into a, a, a potentially difficult spot? I mean, is that a fair characterization of how you see things? It's interesting how similar the dynamic is from the 06, 08 classes of Democrats, because 10 years ago when the Democrats were debating the initial phases of the ACA and health care reform, one of the options that was put forward was the public option that would be a government-run sort of health insurance company that would compete in the exchanges against private insurers. And when the Democrats had a 78-seat majority in the House, they had a filibuster-proof 60-seat Democrats, 60 Democrats in the Senate before Senator Kennedy died, and a newly elected popular President Obama who would have signed a, a bill that was more to the left than the ACA ended up being. If they couldn't even gain public support for the public option in that climate when they had overwhelming Democratic majorities, Ten years ago, I would have said, and I did say, how on earth is the public ever going to accept anything like a Medicare for all? I think 10 years ago that was accurate. That is not necessarily the case today. And I think that gives people who are willing to think 
through that issue, a more of a comfort level with government intervention in the healthcare system. I mean, I, I think that's anyone who I think who has paid close attention to your career, Congressman, would be surprised to hear you say that, that the, the public is open to more government, I don't want to say interference, but control over healthcare. I mean, that, that would represent a shift even in your own thinking, I think, right? Well, a, a shift in the sense that I've seen what's happened over the past 10 years. I think what I was saying 10 years ago that there was concern in that regard was true at that time. I don't feel that it's true anymore. And I think in large part that is because the ACA has not seen the dire consequences that many on the right predicted. And when you have more of a comfort level with that type of intervention and you think about the fact that the VA and the Department of Defense and Medicare and Medicaid, those are all government programs. Now you have the exchanges in the ACA. I think the logical next step for people who are supportive and comfortable with that approach would be more government intervention, which is why you're seeing single payer and Medicare for all plans be proposed by some of these national candidates. Hey, Congressman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Glad to do it. Enjoyed the talk. That's the the ultimate Alex Forty compliment. You're in a story, and then you get to come on the podcast and talk more about it. You're so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a rare it's a rare compliment. Um, but the interview was was good when we talked last week. I thought today's interview was also good, and I think there's just a really interesting point that he makes in there that in the short run in 2018 that this drift to the left won't hurt the party all that much. This is basically, I agree with that. But the long term, whether that's 2020 or even beyond, like the congressman is getting into, I do think it's going to create some challenges, particularly if you have like a Freedom Caucus equivalent for Democrats, uh, which someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has mentioned and talked about. That's where I think you're going to start to see maybe some, some long term problems politically for the party. Uh, no one better to weigh in on the state of the Democratic Party than you, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. That's nice of you to say. <laughs> okay. Well, we want to welcome Adam Walner onto the show. He heads up our influencer project for McClatchy. Adam, welcome. Thanks for having me back on. Okay. So you got some interesting results in Missouri about LGBT rights. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So it's interesting that um, as part of our ongoing influencer series in Missouri, they decided to tackle the issue of LGBTQ rights. And this is an interesting state to do it, given it's traditionally such a conservative, Republican-leaning state. But we saw through the survey of the influencers, and just a quick reminder of who they are, it's it's this panel that we've assembled in in a couple of different states. And in Missouri, there's 50 of these individuals who come from a, a variety of political and policy backgrounds. And there was some some appetite for extending legal protections for gay and lesbian individuals into some some private sectors, you know, whether that's employment or the housing market. And that's actually something that uh, Missouri lawmakers have repeatedly tried to address. In fact, over the past 20 years, they've tried to pass something called the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act that would address exactly that. But there just has never been the political appetite or political will to get that all the way to the governor's desk. We'll see if that changes after this election cycle in 2019, certainly at least among the influencers, there seems to be uh, some growing appetite to, to do that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we just had on Jason Altmaier to talk about how the Democrats in particular are shifting left on an issue like gay rights. And I think 20 years ago, maybe when this fight started, there would have been Democratic lawmakers, even in Missouri, who would have been hesitant to tackle this. I would think that Democrats pretty uniformly are on board with this. And 
theory, if you can get some Republican support, that's enough to, to get it passed. That's right. And in a state like Missouri, you're going to need some Republican support, right? I mean, you know, even if, you know, operate under the assumption that every Democrat who's in the Missouri legislature, and that's probably not even the case, you know, is in favor of LGBTQ rights, in favor of, of these anti-discrimination laws in employment and housing, you're still going to need some Republicans on board with that. Just judging by the influencer results, you know, there are some more Republican-leaning folks in there who, who did seem open to this. So we'll see if that translates to, to politicians as well. So tell us where else you've been in the field. Certainly in Missouri, LGBTQ rights is, is an issue that uh, is not unique to Missouri. That's something that you know we've been talking about um, nationally uh, for quite some time. But in Florida, a kind of a, a unique issue there in charter schools. This is something we haven't really heard that much about at the national level. But in Florida, it, it's a hot topic. In Florida, we have the sixth highest enrollment rate for public school students in the nation. Uh, the outgoing governor there, Rick Scott, now running for Senate, has been a major proponent of that. And uh, voters are going to have a say in sort of the future of these schools this fall. Originally, there was actually going to be a ballot measure that would have eased the path to create more charter schools. The Florida Supreme Court ended up removing that, saying it was misleading, and about three-fourths of our influencers in Florida agreed with that decision. But when you dug a little bit deeper into the results, you know, you found that the influencer said that the state needs to kind of strike that that balance between the charter schools and the traditional public schools. You know, many saying that rather than expanding the current number of charter schools, uh, they just work to improve the current ones. And that shouldn't come at the expense of the more conventional public schools. And even though that ballot measure isn't going to be before voters this fall, they're still going to play a major role in this debate. Just look at the Florida governor's race, for instance. You have Republican Ron DeSantis is pro-school choice, while the Democrat, Andrew Gillum, is strongly against charter schools. So the result of that election is really going to play a major role in the in the direction of, of charter schools in the state. Do you think, I mean, maybe an underrated part of a really, truly progressive platform, we talked about Andrew Gillum as kind of a liberal hero and a liberal champion in a lot of ways, is you're not going to see a lot of support for charter school, which, to be clear, I mean, a lot of Democrats across the country, particularly in cities, have supported charter schools in the past. It's a pretty major change if that's no longer the case. Yeah, absolutely. And and education is one of those issues where, you know, when we're just sort of talking generally about the national political map, something that doesn't really register that much. But when you get into these individual state races, whether it's governor's races or these, uh, you know, local legislative races, uh, this is going to be a big issue in Florida this fall. And finally, you guys checked in on California. That's right. And, and California is a, is a unique state in the sense that they love their ballot measures there. It, it's, it's one of the, the main ways, actually, that voters can sort of affect change aside from electing their officials. It's, it's also one of the ways that political consultants make a lot of money in California. Also, <laughs> also a great point. And, and there's a, a ton of ballot measures before voters this fall, but a third of them actually deal with affordable housing. And the, the one that has sort of got the most attention there is Proposition 10. And that would allow California cities and counties to adopt stronger rent control laws. You know, rent control is certainly a big issue in major cities all across the country. And uh, just looking at the results there, influencers are, are, are pretty divided on that. So we'll have to see how, how those results shake out this fall. Uh, it could be a, a lesson to take away for some other cities to see exactly how that proposition sh- shakes out in November. As a reminder, the Influencer Project is uh, our attempt to bring you some insight to the things that voters are talking about in four of our McClatchy markets that uh, may not have bubbled all the way up to D.C. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you can go check out the past results from Florida, California, Missouri, and North Carolina, uh, either at the McClatchy website or at the, the various local newspapers. Uh, not, not too difficult to find. Thanks, Adam. So, Walner, don't go anywhere. We're going to keep you on the show, and we're going to do the lightning round, where a quick reminder for everyone... Each of our panelists will get 30 seconds to tell you something hopefully you haven't heard about politics. Andrea, don't okay. forget, we've got a timer now. Okay, you're, you're on your phone. I'm going to get on my phone, and we're gonna, I'm going to show you the 30 show seconds. Up. 
Andrea, I've got the clock here. Ready, set, go. Sure. I want to use my spotlight today to talk about a story written by our fall intern, Kellen Browning, about a tougher-than-expected re-election race for one of the GOP's three Hispanic congresswomen in Washington's 3rd District. This is really a comment more about Kellen and the quality of our interns here. I see a, a hotline feature for this guy. Uh, Andrea, you're always looking out for the younger reporters. It's it's a, a endearing quality. Thank you. Okay, Walner, you're up next. All right, well, there's a family feud in Wisconsin's 1st District where House Speaker Paul Ryan is retiring. The brother of Democrat Randy Bryce, better known by his Twitter handle, Iron Stash, appears in a new TV ad launched just this morning. But it's actually an ad from the Republican Super PAC Congressional Leadership Fund attacking Bryce. The brother, James Bryce, says he's actually going to be voting for the Republican, Brian Style, in that race in November. So, Alex, it could be an awkward Thanksgiving in the Bryce household uh, this November if they even celebrate it together at all. Yeah, that was uh, a pretty unusual ad. Uh, No kidding, right? When you see someone's brother appear in a television ad criticizing his his, uh, brethren, pretty hard-hitting stuff. Yeah, definitely not an ad uh, you see every day. Warner, and congratulations. You easily made it in under 30 seconds. That's a real improvement for you. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, mine is in a similar vein and similar to something we talked about with Jason Altmaier. Two new ads have come out recently from the same GOP Super PAC Congressional Leadership Fund targeting Democrats Katie Porter and Kara Eastman in Orange County and Omaha, Nebraska, respectively, over their support for single-payer politics. There's a lot you can dive into this, but it is the kind of attack you're not seeing on other Democrats. It's certainly worth keeping tabs on whether this attack is going to be successful, relevant for 2018, but also beyond for Democrats as they gradually adopt this position more and more and more. Did I do it? Did I get it under? 29.78. Wow. That was that was really impressive, Not if bad. I do say so myself. Andrea, I got to say, a pleasure as always doing the show with you. Thanks, Alex. Walner, I guess come back anytime. Thanks for that ringing endorsement, Alex. You're He's welcome. going to be in your chair when you're out of town. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.